0: Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our
1: featured episode. Advice to listeners before we get going, there is a swear word that was used once or twice in this episode.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's anything that most people are going to find too jarring, but if you have kids in the car with you or other sensitive ears in in your location, you might want to be advised.
1: Okay, let's start with a quote from our guest, Jonathan Roush. He writes, "Acquiring knowledge is a conversation, not a destination. It's a process, a journey, a journey we take together, not alone." others are always involved, and knowledge is not something I have. More fundamentally, it's something we have.
2: This is such an important concept that our sense of the world, our knowledge of the world is something that's shaped through a good faith effort of trying to establish facts, then challenging those facts to make sure they really hold up, discussing them, and allowing our understanding of the world to evolve. And this is a process that today I worry might be under threat.
1: The Constitution of Knowledge with Jonathan Rausch.
0: Maybe I'm biased, but I claim that the Constitution of Knowledge, the reality-based community that it sets up, this global network of people hunting for each other's errors, is far and away the greatest human technology ever invented. This is the only way to make knowledge that can create a global conversation of people looking for truth and more especially looking for error because that's really what we're doing we're all hunting for each other's mistakes and that's where truth comes from
1: our show is about fixes yeah how to make the world a better place how How do we we fix fix it? it how do we fix it Richard, I
2: think you and I both agree that the health of American democracy, and and that in some other countries, is threatened by all kinds of things. These disinformation tactics, trolling, conspiracy theories, cancel culture, various efforts to undermine the marketplace of ideas, and really attack the social rules that underline our ability to turn our disagreements into knowledge.
1: It's easy to blame social media for the often crazy attacks on knowledge and what we understand collectively as truth, but the causes of these attacks are complex, and that's what we're going to consider today.
2: Jonathan Rauch is the author of the excellent new book, *The Constitution of Knowledge: A Defense of Truth*. He's a senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. And the author, as many of you know, many books and a really sterling example of what it means to be a public intellectual today.
1: Thanks for joining us, Jonathan, on How Do We Fix It? First, what is the Constitution of Knowledge?
0: Well, thank you so much for having me to begin with. And yeah, that's, that's the big new idea of the book is that we have a Constitution of Knowledge. That is the system that we in America and people who care about truth around the world rely on to keep us anchored to reality and to turn our disagreements into facts. And it is the only system known to mankind that can do those two things.
1: Is this a network? Is it? I mean, just explain this a little bit more.
0: So the best way I find to explain this is to just back up one step and, and talk about what the problem is that it's solving. Every society, large or small needs to figure out whether certain things are true or false for public purposes. And historically, the way they've done that is that they divide into sects, each of which believing its own separate truth, and they go to war, or they appoint a priest or a prince or a politburo who oppresses everyone and says, here's what you have to believe. So they usually uh, wind up at war with each other or going down rabbit holes of false belief and ignorance and oppression reign, and that's the first 200,000 years of human history.
1: And then what happened? What happened?
0: About 350 years ago, around the same time that the ideas behind the U.S. Constitution were floated, similar ideas came up for knowledge, which is instead of having rulers, let's have rules. Let's say the only way you can really claim to know something is by running it through all these rules, all these other people who are going to have to check you. You're going to have to persuade them that you're right. Other people are going to try to persuade them that you're wrong. Only what comes out of that process, all those institutions, all those checks and balances, that's going to be knowledge. And that turns out to solve the same kind of problem that the U.S. Constitution does, which is taking a very diverse society and creating a system in which people can bargain, negotiate, reach some kinds
2: of consensus about law on the one hand and truth on the other. So in that period, in the 17th and 18th century, we had these these world-changing revolutions in terms of the, the scientific revolution and the idea that facts had to be based on some kind of of test or empiricism. We had an economic revolution with the development of, of, of markets, and we had a political revolution with the modern ideas of democracy. We're all the beneficiaries of that. And do you feel like today maybe people don't appreciate it, some of those very systems and traditions and norms that helped establish all these wonderful things are now under attack.
0: We got complacent in a word, Jim. The system worked so well for so long that we took it for granted. We developed this notion that if you ask Americans where knowledge comes from, where truth comes from, they're they're more than likely to say the marketplace of ideas. And the notion there is that free speech, if you let it go, will just automatically produce truth because it'll go into this marketplace and the best ideas will prevail. Well, it turns out that's not how it happens. You need the free speech, but it's only the input because if you leave people in an unstructured environment to believe whatever they feel like believing, they'll believe stuff that's fun to believe, that increases their status in their group or that flatters their ego and the situation turns into QAnon. They go into their rabbit holes and we're back where we started. So there are all kinds of rules that you need. Things like you have to check your statements and you have to do it in ways that work for anybody, not just people who agree with you. There are all kinds of institutions. These are everything from universities, academic journals, research institutes to newsrooms. I'm a journalist, like the newsroom that taught me, you have to check everything. It has to be edited. You're sure it's right, then it's going to be checked by other journalists. The law is another big one. Donald Trump found out that when he took spurious claims to court, they got thrown out because they weren't factual. Courts find facts. And the fourth big pillar, what I call the reality-based community, is government, which also has to be fact-based. And that's like the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the weather report that Donald Trump tried to change. So you need all of that stuff. You need to understand it's there. You need to maintain it and understand it and especially defend it when it comes under attack as it is right now.
1: And we're also dealing now with information warfare, which are attacks on knowledge.
0: Yeah, Yeah. People have understood from time immemorial since Plato's day that you can manipulate the social and media environment for political gain, confuse people about what to believe or shame them so that they think it's wrong to believe something that may be true. And by manipulating people in that way, you can gain a lot of power. So we've hit a period when we're seeing major outbreaks of two different kinds of social manipulation. One is primarily from the right, that's disinformation, conspiracy theories, what's called the fire hose of falsehood. That's where you put out so many lies, half-truths, and conspiracy theories so fast that the media can't keep up with them, refuting them, and the public doesn't know what to believe anymore, who to believe. And then the other is the use of social coercion. That's an old tactic, but it's so much easier now with social media. So. The left was the first to pick up on the use of what's now called canceling, social coercion, using these new tools. And the right was the first to pick up on the use of Russian-style disinformation. That's you know Steve Bannon, the advisor to Trump, as he put it, flood the zone with shit. Sorry, uh, I guess it's an R-rated podcast now. <laughs> but it's, it's just important to emphasize that these are just tools. They're not ideological. They can be used by the left, the right, Nazis, Leninists. Putin, Trump, cancelers, CRT, anybody can use
2: them. Another factor, you mentioned the big debate over critical race theory. It seems like that's part of a trend that we are seeing on both the right and the left, to see ourselves primarily as parts of groups, as as tribe. But you cite some really interesting research that once you start seeing yourself as primarily as a member of a tribe, opposed to other tribes, it really affects your ability to think clearly and rationally.
0: Yeah, you get into what I call zombie science. And that's where if all you're talking to are people who agree with you, then you feel like you're putting your beliefs out for checking and and disconfirmation. But everyone you talk to thinks the same thing you do, and we can't see our own biases. Uh, That's been well established. We don't even think we have bias. We all think the other person's biased, but not us. So the only way this works is you have to have a lot of diverse viewpoints, and then you have to require people to do the last thing they feel like doing, which is submit their own viewpoints to people with very different viewpoints, often antagonistic viewpoints. That's where knowledge comes from. People will go to great lengths to avoid that. One study found they'd rather have root canal work than encounter political views they they disagree with.
1: I love this simple sentence in The Constitution of Knowledge, which says, acquiring knowledge is a conversation, not a destination.
0: This is the great invention of The Constitution of Knowledge. Maybe I'm biased, but I claim that The constitution of knowledge, the reality-based community that it sets up, this global network of people hunting for each other's errors, is far and away the greatest human technology ever invented. It took us from tribes of small groups that advanced knowledge almost zero in 200,000 years to analyzing the COVID-19 genome in, in days, organizing scientists. Um, researchers almost overnight to do this work. So the key to this transformational technology is that everyone can enter a global conversation with anyone about an idea. I can float a hypothesis in an article I write, and someone who's living in Ethiopia uh, speaks an entirely different language can write a counterpoint. If I do research, people around the world with other views can can weigh in. Um, this is the only way to make knowledge that can create a global conversation of people looking for truth and more especially looking for error because that's really what we're doing. We're all hunting for
2: each other's mistakes. And that's where truth comes from. And you said that the, the system has to be depersonalized and decentralized and rules-based. Can you explain how that works in journalism, science, and other fields?
0: Well, that's really the key to the whole enterprise. Anybody can check a statement that they believe or propound by saying, uh, I heard it from God, or I feel it in my gut, or it ought to be true, or my friend told me, or it's what we as a group believe. Uh, That's just not going to get you to truth because you won't spot your errors. So it turns out that as with the U.S. Constitution, you need checks and balances. You need institutions and structures that incentivize people to behave in certain ways. So in the U.S. Constitution, for example, um, if you want to make a law and use state power, you're going to have to persuade members of Congress in two chambers to pass it, a president to sign it, courts to uphold it, factions to support it, it's going to change along the way because those other people and organizations will all have a say. And that's the whole point of the system. It's to bring all of those minds and all of those factions to bear. So the result at the end of the day may not be exactly what any of us started with, but will be acceptable to society. So constitutional knowledge, exact same thing. It's, it's not just a figure of speech. It's not just a metaphor It's really a social system doing the same thing. And it says, you know, if Richard or Jim want to make knowledge, they can't just say it. They can't just believe it. They're going to have to submit it to this global network of people and institutions that are checking. They're going to have to know the rules for that. Like you're going to have to know how to write an academic article, if that's what your specialty is. Show you know what you're doing. Show you're familiar with the field. Make an evidence-based argument using experiments that are replicable or using arguments that will work no matter what culture you come from and then other people are going to have at you and it can take 10 or 20 years to move through this system
1: well here's my journalistic pushback you talk about years i mean i've i have deadlines every day i mean <laughs> stories are written for you know the current news cycle how does this apply to journalism as opposed to, say, the law, which does often move slowly, or science, where it can be a long process of discovery?
0: It it can be slow in science, but remember, when we need it to be fast, it can be super fast. The the COVID-19 genome was cracked within 10 days, and the vaccine was designed, first vaccine, basically over a weekend. Uh, Journalism, I'm a journalist. My first job, Winston-Salem Journal. North Carolina, uh, I was a beat reporter. And you quickly learn that even if you're a hurry, in a hurry, you have to be accurate. You're going to have to pass through an editor who is going to ask you some pretty tough questions if the thing doesn't be credible. Say, I need to look at your notes here. Did you call so and so? Then you're going to go through a copy desk. If it's a magazine or increasingly now online publications, you're going to be fact checked by someone who's going to say, produce your sources. Now, that can be done in hours, not years, but those are all gates that you're going to have to pr- go through. That pass the skeptical scrutiny of others in the system, and then something else you know. When it goes into print, if you're wrong, other people are going to find that out. They'll either write letters or they'll get online or some other outlet will try to do a follow and say, wait a minute, Davies and Megs, they completely botched the story. You know, maybe it's the Wuhan lab release story about coronavirus. The key in all of these fields isn't how fast or slow they move. It's that they're all basically hunting for errors and holding themselves accountable to the other people in the system for their mistakes. That's the magic formula, fast or slow.
1: Speaking of the need to check our facts, one troubling example last year and earlier this year, was the unwillingness of much of the media to report on or take seriously the Wuhan lab leak theory about the origins of COVID. Is that an example of eroding standards in journalism?
0: Well, I don't know about eroding. I worry about journalism because finding facts is so expensive and so painstaking. And writing opinions and spouting half-truths and tweeting is very, very cheap and collects eyeballs. I, unlike a lot of people, actually, I disagree with those who see the, the Wuhan lab reporting as a black eye to journalism. When you go back and look at it, actually, a lot of outlets did not misreport it. Uh, some did. Many, many did not. And the most important thing is that why did that hypothesis resurface months later? It was because accomplished mainstream journalists at places like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times stayed on the story, watched it, said, hey, wait a minute, maybe we went too fast. Here's some evidence. Look at what these academics are saying. They resurfaced it. They brought it back. And, and now we're having kind of a, an almost festival of journalistic navel gazing to figure out how we got it so wrong. Well, that's the system actually working. The revolution in human affairs that is the constitution of knowledge, it says, you know what? Everyone makes mistakes, and it shouldn't be the end of your career if you just have a hypothesis and it's wrong. As long as you hold yourself accountable, you print the correction, you come back and get it right, that means your errors, your mistakes become fuel for further learning.
1: This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. We're speaking with Jonathan Roush, author of the brand new book, The Constitution of Knowledge, a defense of truth. Another threat to the Constitution of Knowledge is what you call emotional safetyism, something you say that's become much more common in the past five or six years.
0: That's the notion that hurtful words are a form of violence, make us literally unsafe, Uh, Well, that means that science and learning are a form of violence because they're based on criticism, telling us things that we don't want to hear. Uh, Seeing that leech not only into journalism, but it's very common in academia. It's increasingly common in the corporate environment. Uh, That is not a good thing because the idea that we're supposed to stay safe from alternative hypotheses and views that may offend us because they're novel seem wrongheaded. Maybe they're right, though. Um, I'm a campaigner for same-sex marriage, a fight that seemed hopeless back when I started in the mid-90s. And, and one reason for that is everyone thought that people saying what I was saying were just crazy, that it was insupportable. Uh, well, sometimes facts that come in from the margins of society, from people who are actually deemed pariahs, turn out to be right. So it concerns me a lot when we see the inroads into journalism of emotional safetyism. You know, journalism is not a field for people who want to be safe, from different ideas and different people and challenging situations. It is a job for people whose job it is to encounter those situations.
1: Let's, before we go, talk about solutions. What are some things that we should look at differently that are not being discussed in the public square today nearly as much as they should be?
0: Well, there is an elephant in the room. I think it's the biggest single threat out there, at least in America, to the constitution of knowledge. People, Many people are reluctant to talk about it the way it should be talked about because it sounds, frankly, so partisan. I am center-right. I have voted for many Republicans. Um, but what we have seen in the last five years under Donald J. Trump and his MAGA movement is unprecedented in American politics, and that's the adaptation to American politics of mass Russian style disinformation tactics that happened throughout his presidency with, you know, the dizzying number of falsehoods that he spawned, conspiracy theories. But it really takes off. It goes to the next level and stop the steal. And it has succeeded in persuading 70% of Republicans that the election was stolen and a plurality of independents that it might have been stolen. Uh, And this is being done on purpose. This is not just something, you know, we're walking along one day, our institutions failed us, um, working class wages dropped, so it was bound to happen. Uh Uh-uh. This is deliberate. This is a massive Russian-style disinformation campaign. So we need to be square with ourselves that we're under an epistemic attack. It's coming from the heart of our domestic political system. We got to wise up about that. Um, So that's an important thing to do. Another thing that we need to do that's starting actually to happen on the canceling side is counter-mobilize. The cancelers, as we call them now, were were the first innovators to really understand the potential of digital media to run campaigns to shame and ostracize people, to smear their reputations, to get them fired from their jobs, to make make them radioactive to their friends, and they used it. The key there is to counter-organize, to begin providing support for individuals who get hit with these tactics, to provide them uh, with legal remedies, with counseling, but most important, with comrades, people who say, we are here with you, we are standing up for you. And that is starting to happen. Uh, We've seen an outpouring just in the last few months of new groups that are beginning to do that work. Everything from the Academic Freedom Alliance, um, a kind of NATO for uh, academic freedom, to Uh, The Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, which is pushing back in the schools and trying to develop an anti-racist curriculum that is not about racial essentialism, and much more in that vein.
2: You talk about the kind of targeted disinformation Russian style uh, that has been applied in politics in, in recent years, and doesn't that kind of go hand in hand with a an academic movement going back decades i mean i went to college during the early days of the postmodern movement i actually was in a group of students that had breakfast with Michel foucault the great thinker of really of, uh, yeah where was that and that was at dartmouth college and i envy you, you know, at those days it was such and sort of outre cool way of looking at the world but over the decades it migrated into into all fields and and as a kind of a a critique of the the constitution of knowledge, really. The idea that that these ideas really are, that facts can be objective, that people can, in good faith, debate and reach some kind of truth. Instead, everything is socially constructed. Everything's an artifact of power and oppression in some form. Right. Well, they said, for example, the truth, knowledge, science, all of that,
0: it's just power all the way down. And since for example, white males have had the power. We should reverse that. People have written books about this, but the irony of those movements is that they saw themselves as liberatory left-wing movements, but the tools that they were inventing, the ideas and doctrines turned out to be, you know, it's like inventing nuclear weapons. You have to be careful who gets them. And the right picked up on this stuff and some of the same arguments and said, well, you know, if it's power all the way down, then right now the mainstream media have the power and they're using it to dominate, dominate us and lie to us. So they create their alternative news network and that gradually moves away from news toward conspiracy theories. And then along come people like Steve Bannon, who famously says that the, um, the way to deal with, uh, with journalism, he says journalists are the real enemy. The way to deal with them is to, and I quote, flood the zone with shit. Oops. They pick up these tools and they use these tools. So they're now out there. Uh, we're just going to have to live with them for the indefinite future and figure out how to, uh, to limit the damage.
2: So are you in the end optimistic? I'm hopeful.
0: And that's an important distinction. Um, there have been earlier epistemic attacks and disruption, and it took a long time. And in the case of the printing press, it took about hundred to 150 years of savage warfare and, the deaths of maybe thirty percent of the population of what's today's Germany.
1: You are talking about the Hundred Years' War in Europe in the uh, in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries.
0: Yeah, those were battles all across Europe between Catholics and Protestants, and often between Protestants. Um, and we had far from far from deadly, but we had a real battle to to build a fact based media in America after the 19th century, which was, you know, just basically a sewer of extreme partisanship and fake news in the 19th century. When these new technologies and disruptors come along, you have to build new guidelines and guardrails. And you have to do that across society. And that's things like the Facebook Oversight Board, which I think is is very promising. It's an effort to say if they work in Facebook to make the place more attractive to users and more sustainable, then others may adopt them. That's how we turned around journalism, to journalists themselves becoming more savvy about disinformation and reporting on it, civil society, uh, groups like the ones I described earlier that are pushing back against cancel culture, ordinary people becoming more cognizant that they're being manipulated by these tactics, that they're being taken in. So lots of changes. The tools that are being used here against the constitution of knowledge, they are intentional, they are sophisticated, they are powerful. We must understand them, and we must organize to defend the system we have. And if we don't do that, yeah, they win.
1: You mentioned Facebook and the Facebook uh, advisory or supervisory board. Is this one reason for hope that social media is now challenging itself and also facing challenges from outside?
0: Yeah, I think it is. Five years ago, if you brought up these problems to social media executives, I say digital media because I want to include, you know, Google and search engines and stuff like that. Um, They would typically say, you know, first of all, you can't prove it's a serious problem. And second, we're in the free speech business. This isn't our problem. Um, Let the chips fall where they may. There's been a dawn of new understanding the last five years, as we've seen just how damaging to democracy disinformation is. Um, And they're no longer saying that, whereas whereas the best minds in uh, digital media five years ago were poo-pooing the problem or saying it's not our problem, they now understand that this is a mortal threat to their business model. If your product is a sewer of unreliable information and harassment, then people will go away They also understand the pressures on society from regulation, from their audiences, and from their own employees are not sustainable. So those good minds are now working on the problem. It's a wicked hard problem, but I think they're pointing the right direction. Um, Twitter now, you know, it's a small thing, but these incentives can really change the way platforms operate. You know, now if you try to tweet out a link that you haven't read first, watch what happens. It'll intervene. It'll say, you sure you want to do that? And that's the right kind of thinking. That's what we do in science and journalism when someone says, uh, hey, Jim, this story you've written, are you sure? Have you checked this or that? Those are the incentives, the speed bumps along the way that help us to think, to consult others, to make sure we got the right answer.
1: Jonathan rausch author of The Constitution of Knowledge.
2: Richard, you told me before the show that you have a recommendation that might stump me. Some of our listeners might know that I used to be editor of a movie magazine although my knowledge of movies is is anything but complete but let me hear it what's your recommendation for this week
1: i'll be impressed if you've not only seen this film but also remember it clearly it's called the leopard by the great italian filmmaker lucino visconti
2: well visconti is certainly one of the greats i do remember this movie so tell us what you loved about it
1: yeah it it was it was filmed in nineteen sixty three and it is remarkably beautiful literate and lush it it runs more than three hours but held both my wife and i in rapt attention. We rented it online for four bucks and one of the great things about it is is an extraordinary performance uh, by Burt Lancaster who plays um a weary prince in 19th century Sicily who's resigned to changing times and the nobility's diminished role in in the new nation state of Italy.
2: Yes, and it also has um Alain Delon, the great French actor and Claudia uh, Cardinale. I'm probably mangling both French and Italian in one one sentence, but it's a wonderful example of why so many people in the 50s and 60s started turning to European cinema to to get a kind of a nuance and richness that they weren't typically finding in American films of the era.
1: You've impressed me again, Jim, by remembering who is in the film.
2: There's nothing like Wikipedia, Richard. (laughs) (laughs)
1: the constitution of knowledge jim for me is one of those rare books that i think i'm going to remember for many many years to come it is brilliantly written and and formulated and even if you feel like you know all about disinformation campaigns and the Assault on Truth by former President Trump, there are some historical references that that bring all of our concerns about the the assault on democracy into into focus.
2: Yeah, I think the really key thing to me about this book is right there in the subhead a defense of truth and the very idea that we can use a word like truth that we can define it that we can establish some processes to get closer to it never perfect always uh, you know the, the the search for truth whether it's in journalism or, or science or, or setting Policy and society or law. It's always imperfect, but what I think is so important is these underlying ground rules, traditions, institutions that come down to us really from the Enlightenment. We've seen really deep challenges to to all of these ideas that he celebrates in his book. So it's not a moment too soon to kind of man the barricades and defend these traditions that have allowed us to develop the the kind of intellectual
1: and moral infrastructure that holds our society together. One of the things I love about Jonathan Rausch is he has a twinkle in his eye. And right at the end of the book, uh, he has a great quote from Alexis de Tocqueville uh, who wrote, about the united states and traveled in the 1830s and he said about this country in america the majority draws a formidable circle around thought within these limits the writer is free but woe to him if he dares go beyond them there's always been this kind of rigid and earnest aspect to American thought. And, and Europeans often joke that we're puritanical and, and blind to our own contradictions in this very messy democracy that we have. And I'm saying this because while...
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's really frustrating that there, is, there isn't a lot of common ground or, or middle ground. And and i think that the the efforts to vilify the other side whichever side you're on it, 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 it's taking the place of good faith efforts to to say, okay well what set of facts can we agree on? Uh, I love that great old Patrick Moynihan Senator Patrick Moynihan quote. He says we're all entitled to our own opinions. we're not entitled to our own facts. So let's celebrate facts and the, and the institutions that help us locate them, discuss them and, and really deal with them uh, in in an honest way.
1: It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies and I'm Jim Meggs. And our show is a production of Davies Content. Uh, We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. More at DaviesContent.com. And as always, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our
0: events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.